This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. Tonight, a deafening silence from the president's Twitter account in his waning days as commander-in-chief. Twitter, run by CEO Jack Dorsey, saying after close review of the president's recent tweets, it banned him due to the risk of further incitement of violence. Twitter specifically warning, quote, plans for future armed protests have already begun proliferating on and off Twitter, including a proposed secondary attack on the U.S. Capitol and state Capitol buildings on January 17th. After the ban, the president tried to tweet from other campaign and staff accounts, triggering a game of whack-a-mole with Twitter quickly taking down his posts. Many platforms have banned or restricted the president's accounts, including Facebook and Instagram, where he's blocked indefinitely and for at least the next two weeks. The Law Bites podcast took a breather over the holidays and into early January, but there is seemingly no break for digital policy issues. Over the past few weeks, internet platforms have found themselves squarely in the public eye as company after company, from Shopify to Twitter to Facebook, deplatformed the former U.S. President Donald Trump in response to the events in Washington earlier this month. Dr. Heidi Torek works on media, international organizations, and transatlantic relations at the University of British Columbia where she is a member of the Science and Technology Studies Program, the Language Science Institute, and the Institute for European Studies. Dr. Torek is one of Canada's most prolific thinkers on internet platform policies, and she joins me on the podcast for a conversation about the role and responsibilities of internet platforms, proposals for payments in the news sector, and insights into what governments should be doing about better communicating with the public about the COVID-19 global pandemic. Heidi, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Hey, it's a pleasure. Okay, well, I'm so glad you, you came on after a bit of, I guess, of a brief hiatus for my podcast for the holidays and uh, due to some intensive teaching. It, it's nice to be back, and I think you're really the perfect person to uh, get us started again. Um, you are working and engaged on so many timely issues, so I'm really excited about this conversation. And, and I wanted to start in the area that it seems like just about everybody is talking about right now, which coming out of the Trump deplatforming and platform policies more broadly raises a whole host of, of policy and, and legal issues. Why don't we start with, with some of your writing? You've been writing a lot about platform policies, and it, it strikes me that one of the recurring themes that you raise is often inconsistency. Can you walk us through a little bit some of the recent examples of how platforms approach to some of the real challenging issues, whether elections, vaccines, the violence uh, that we saw earlier this month, how they, they suffer from a lack of consistent application and approach? I think inconsistency is actually a great way to think about this, and I would put it on two levels. One is in when the policies are in fact declared, and the other is in their very enforcement. So I've looked at this um, in a recent piece, thinking about just three elements of this, um, elections, uh, vaccine disinformation, and political violence. So if we think about elections, obviously in in Canada, uh, there was a lot of discussion around the Election Modernization Act, but in terms of platforms really taking this very seriously, particularly in terms of ads, it was really the US election. And yet, even during that election, uh, Facebook was changing its 
its policies at points when millions of Americans had already voted, which is really sort of changing the rules of the game in the middle of the game. Um, in other cases, I think what we've seen is that um, there's an inconsistent approach that, that really depends on where the platforms are ultimately focusing, which is so often uh, Europe and North America. So in the case of vaccine disinformation, platforms really got serious about that only in mid-March, which is when the COVID-19 pandemic became a major issue for Europe and North America, rather than getting serious about it back in January, which was when places like South Korea and Taiwan were really working on uh, questions around disinformation. So I think these are just a couple of examples, the very kind of inconsistent approach that we see platforms taking, whether it's in terms of timing or uh, which countries they're really taking their cues from. Yeah. So, so what do you think accounts for some of that? Is that is that is that the, that global issue that they take their cues from some countries and not others? Is it that they are, in effect, in some instances here, just making it up as they go along? Is it that they treat uh, different personalities or different kinds of speech differently? How, how how would you account for some of that inconsistency? Many of the rules about, for example, on Twitter, public interest personalities and them in effect, having more latitude in terms of what they post, um, seemed in many senses to be a policy specifically created around President Trump. And we haven't seen that happen for other leaders who have perhaps made similarly egregious, if not even more egregious statements. So I think there are some pretty basic reasons why we've ended up in this place. But I think there's also a, a broader and more important point, which is that I think these platforms are trying to or have tried to do something that from a historical perspective has proven impossible, which is to create global contents, uh, uh, global standards around content. Um, so in the historical work that I've done, looking back at everything from telegraphy to radio, um, I've looked at how companies of various varieties try to create global technical standards that generally worked. Um, but they sometimes try to create global standards for content, and that in general has always fallen apart, um, including for reasons like different democracies have different visions of what um, freedom of expression is. Um, you obviously have authoritarian regimes, et cetera, et cetera. So I think the sort of more philosophical problem is the idea that you could have global standards for content. That that unquestionably represents a significant challenge. You know, it strikes me, of course, that different countries themselves have different standards. And while we see this enormous emphasis on, on governments reasserting their role and their regulatory power, you know, how do we reconcile that, you know, the companies, some of the companies' challenge here in, in coming up with global standards where there really are none is are governments themselves going to be able to come up with global standards or is it is it ultimately going to fall to these platforms to have to say that there there isn't a global standard and we're going to have to stop trying to search for one? Yeah, I mean, that's, I think, the, the interesting moment that we've been in over the last couple of years, um, perhaps kicked off in a way by the, the German net enforcement law that, that came into effect from 2018, which was effectively saying that German, 22 statutes of, of German speech law, including uh, law around hate speech, had to be enforced online. And we could see that as a moment when a democratic government was saying, hey, you might be a global platform, but when you have people in Germany, you'll enforce uh, German speech law. So I think this has been the, the increasing moment where there are global content moderation standards, but they are actually modified depending on, on where you live. Yeah, from a from a company perspective, one of the other things that they're of course, you know, struggling with, or at least part of the the challenge here, is that who does the moderating? And you know, there's been a considerable amount of emphasis around machine learning and AI. We've also seen pretty horrific stories at times about the out the world of outsourcing this content moderation and uh, what the people who do that go through. Uh, you have thoughts about 
how how these large companies dealing with just almost an incalculable amount of content, how do you grapple with that uh, from a practical operational perspective? Yeah, it's a great question. And the reason I like this question is because it starts to get at the fact that content moderation is not just a question of, of content, right? It's a question of uh, labor standards, for example, for the people who are doing this content moderation. It's a question of how they're trained. Are they, for example, if they're doing English language moderation and they're sitting in, for example, the Philippines, are they seeing one thing from Australia, then from Ireland, then from Canada, then from the US? So they uh, inevitably lack context about, say, Canadian speech and why something might be uh, harmful or hateful speech that crosses the line in Canada where you wouldn't necessarily think that it was if you just uh, thought about English language from a U.S. perspective. But it, but it reminds us that we can perhaps address some of the problems that we see in content through other means like, for example, uh, labor standards. The other thing that I would say, because you brought up AI, is that uh, having done a project uh, myself that is, is coming towards its end on um, harassment of political candidates during the 2019 federal election in Canada and trying to build a machine learning model around this, <laughs> going through all of that really shows you the difficulties of trying to use AI and its quality uh, for a whole host of, of detailed reasons that uh, we don't really have time to get into. But it's incredibly difficult to build a model that can really encapsulate um, hate speech or even um, different types of harassment. So the idea that we can solve this through AI is, I think, a flawed one. It certainly has a role to play, um, but it can actually end up with all sorts of unintended consequences, um, including in some studies that, that others have done, uh, for example, coming out of Carnegie Mellon, showing that many of the word lists uh, ended up actually with more African-American vernacular English being removed, and, and that that can, in the end, backfire, in a sense, because the people who are pushing for AI as a way to try and remove, uh, say, hate speech, you actually might end up removing more speech from marginalized communities. Uh, I think that's a, that's a great example of some of the, 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 the issues that arise. I mean, at the end of the day, context becomes key in some of the, in, in many of these circumstances. AI struggles with it, the individuals themselves struggle with it. And then when you layer on top, as you've noted, the, the differing approaches that, that exist as between different countries, it, it represents an, an enormous challenge. I mean, we, we often see discussion that basically says, well, you know, you broke it, you bought it. Uh, why don't you find? Why don't you just fix it? But I think you've you've succeeded in really highlighting many of the challenges that are out there. Now, now we've seen the Canadian government uh, at least signal that they're looking to adopt that you broke it, you you bought it kind of approach. Uh, some very clear signals that they're looking for new legislative approaches. They've of course already introduced that on the broadcasting side. They're planning to move forward on tax, uh, but. In particular, they're talking about doing so on the on the speech side as well, um, potentially using the the German law that you noted as a model. So, on the one hand, we've got trade agreements, say with the United States, with the USMCA, that seem to limit the liability of intermediaries. And on the other, we've got the Heritage Minister Stephen Guibault, who's even gone so far as to talk about hurtful comments as potentially being subject to regulation. I suppose if if you were minister for the day. You know, what, what sort of policy direction would you be taking, or at least what would you be recommending to this minister uh, that he be thinking about? 
Right. So one of the main ways that I started getting into this debate is as a, a German historian and as an expert on Germany, so writing a lot about um, the German law that we've mentioned, because in, in part, I think it's quite misunderstood. <laughs> so I've explained as it's an enforcement of uh, speech statutes that, that already exist. Um, but now if we also look at what it has and hasn't achieved, um, there have been a lot of assertions about what it can do um, in terms of, you know, reducing hate in uh, German society, etc., that I'm, I'm not sure bear out in reality or would need very different uh, measurements to really see if that's exactly what is happening. So in a sense, the, the first thing we need to do um, is to actually have a better sense of what's really going on under the hood. So one of the problems that I have, have diagnosed with companies is what, what many people call agnotology, which is a love of ignorance. And this is, I think, quite counterintuitive because companies talk a lot about what they do know, um, but we also have evidence that there are many things that they don't want to investigate. They don't want to know uh, the answer. We have uh, examples of YouTube engineers who started to look into recommendation algorithms and, and what they do in terms of extremism, then being pulled off of that. The more recent case of um, Google's ethical AI uh, co-lead, Timnit Gebru, getting fired over a paper. So the first thing I would love to do is, I think, find regulatory ways to solve some of those agnotology problems. Um, that could be through uh, mandating research access, something uh, we do with health or taxes. There are ways of doing that securely that underpin privacy. Think about algorithmic transparency, something that's mandated for Canadian government algorithms. Uh, how far one can go with that is, is a big debate, but I think it is important to understand what these recommendation algorithms are really doing. Um, another would be ad transparency. So could we take what's within the Election Modernization Act and pull that further. Now, of course, the problem with that is Facebook complied with it and Google did not. So would we get compliance within Canada is another question. But that's number one. Try and solve that agnotology problem through some transparency. Um, the second would be thinking about um, how do we have methods of appeal that don't end up giving more power to the companies. So the irony of the German law is that it actually requires the companies to look at each one of the examples that are flagged by users potentially contravening German law. It's not German courts that decide that, rather it's the companies. So I've suggested an idea of something called e-courts that maybe in some specific cases um, for appeals might go to um, quick turnaround uh, online courts rather than being adjudicated solely within uh, the companies themselves. So there's just a couple of ideas that I think we could use. They go in slightly different directions than um, the NetsDG or, or the German law, but I, I think they might get us further in the long run. Yeah, no, I, I think that the, the German approach, which, which I know has generated certainly a certain amount of appeal, at least for, um, for, for some in the Canadian government and certainly some who are advocating for more regulatory involvement, has gets complicated, at least in a Canadian context, I think, with, as I said, trade agreements on the one hand, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms on the other. You mentioned the the danger or the risk of, of making these companies even more powerful, where uh, they're vested with the power to engage in appeals. Do you have thoughts, uh, I guess, about that issue more generally? I mean, part of the Part of the concern that that I've written about in the past is that, as we sort of sort of essentially lay so much of the much of the responsibility, or propose to lay much of the responsibility on companies to say, you know, you've got to fix it, you've got to make the investments. Does that run the risk of just making these companies even more powerful than they they already are? Because the ability to to do that at scale, given the scope of this issue on a global level in many ways may entrench literally a handful of companies as being the only ones who can succeed with that kind of framework. 
Yeah. So I think that's that's one of the proposals that I've made some somewhere else is, is thinking about what I call vertical <laughs> vertical regulation, right? So you, you don't want to regulate just for Facebook. Do you have a sliding scale? How do you deal with the smaller, medium-sized enterprises? And of course, the weird thing in the world of the internet is something that <laughs> is small and medium uh, could be a company that, that actually has a comparatively huge amount of power. So there was one uh, search engine that was in uh, used quite widely in the Czech Republic and, and Slovakia had a huge percentage of the market, um, but in the world compared to Google was tiny, right? Um, so I think there's there's lots of valid reasons to try to be cognizant of sliding scales. And, and we see that in the European proposed legislation, the, the digital Services Act. And the other is the obvious thing that we confront with any industry with just a few major companies, which is regulatory capture. Um, when Facebook or others call for regulation, one also has to be cognizant that they may be trying to uh, shape regulation in a way that entrenches them. Um, so that kind of regulatory capture problem that you know is obviously well researched for many other industries is one we also have to be cognizant of here. Yeah. Now, when we think about, you know, you've highlighted what's happened, what's been happening in Germany and some other jurisdictions. So Canada is a, you know, obviously a, a small, a small but mighty jurisdiction. Let's say at least we're definitely on the small side. Um, I mean, I think we matter uh, on a global level when when we get into some of these multilateral discussions. But for the reality is that that, that we're not a major player, and it, it raises the question of to what extent do you think there is space for, let's say, made in Canada policies, which was very often for, for politicians on both sides of the aisle, uh, kind of how they often sought to frame things, Canadian solutions. We've we've kind of found a middle ground or found something that that meets our sensibilities. But, you know, is there room for Canadian policies in this very global environment? Or are we better off trying to find like-minded countries and, and trying to establish some global standards that are consistent with what we might want to see here? Yeah, I see this a bit as six of one, half a dozen of the other. In So in following the international life of the Election Modernization Act, it's actually amazing how much traction it got, including in the United States, as seeming to be evidence of how one could revise electoral laws and standards to, to take into account social media. So that was a pretty interesting example. We'll see if it you know ends up with any kind of legislation, say, in the new Biden administration is unlikely, but if elsewhere anyone adopts it. But that, to me, at least in terms of how much buzz it generated amongst those who are interested in election regulation was, was quite impressive. On the other hand, I think Canada now has um, what I'm going to call the second mover advantage, which is that places like Germany have put through a net SDG. Other countries like France have tried to do it, then it's been struck down by their constitutional court. So this is no longer a novel playground. There are actually countries that have tried various things, and there may be a space for, for Canada to have that second mover advantage instead of copying somewhere else, try and learn some of the lessons from it and implement some slightly different standards. But of course, the extent to which that is possible is, I think, limited um, by the size of Canada. And, and as I mentioned, by the fact that in certain cases, the, the companies have said, we won't play along. So the example of the Election Modernization Act and, and Google is one, uh, but we can also, I think, look with great interest to what is happening in Australia, where Google is, is currently threatening to potentially withdraw completely from Australia. So that, I think, is going to be <laughs> a real test of how far can a country that's a, a middle-sized power um, but has some clout as a democracy actually go in, in pushing a multinational like Google. 
Australia is actually a really, uh, a really good segue to one of the other issues that I did want to talk about. And that has to do with the, the emphasis that we've seen in a number of countries, most notably Australia, which is what has sparked uh, Google's response, involving conventional news and demands from newspaper publishers for compensation for linking to their articles. We've seen a couple of different approaches worldwide. The, the Australian approach, which is a more of a competition-based approach that we've seen uh, at least Facebook and Google strongly oppose, and a French-based approach that's grounded uh, more in copyright. The Heritage Ministry Guibault has talked about this as well and, and provided signals that, that Canada is looking to move in this direction. Now, you've written a really excellent piece that, that looks at how the history of intellectual property rights in news should give us pause. Uh, can you provide, uh, provide us with uh, uh, some insight into, into what, your, what your paper talks about? So basically what my paper talks about is the forgotten example. So there's the example of Australia and, and France currently, but bizarrely to, to me, um, there is an example of another country, Germany, trying to put through uh, what was called an ancillary copyright law, a Leistungsschutzrecht, um, over the past six, seven years, um, which was essentially the idea that, that Google would have to pay for the snippets of news that appear when people search for news. And, and this uh, effort was, was led to a great extent by um, the major more traditional media company within Germany, Axel Springer. So that's in a way parallel to much of the Australian debate. Um, it was written into law and it essentially went nowhere. I mean, to the extent that when people are now writing about the Australian and French efforts, they have completely forgotten about um, this extremely lively debate that was happening a mere four, five, six years ago uh, within Germany. So I wanted to point out, A, this existed uh, in the very recent past, and it ended up not working uh, because Google said to these publishers, okay, we will just not show your results unless you sign on the dotted line that actually we can offer them for free. And basically all the publishers opted back in. And the second part of this piece was to say, even more so, um, this is actually a, a debate that has gone back to previous uh, technologies. So I had found in the archives when I was doing my, my history PhD, a basically exactly parallel case of an attempt to create a copyright in news in the late 1920s, early 1930s, as a way for newspapers and news agencies to forestall um, how radio was going to undermine their revenues. So if we look at um, the longer history, and there is indeed a century and a half of history of incumbent news organizations trying to protect their profits through law, particularly trying to get news defined as somehow a form of intellectual uh, property. And I think it's, it's one of many examples where what I've tried to do in this space is say, okay, the discourse is everything is unprecedented. There's no way we can look to the past. The internet is so unprecedented. What are we going to do? Um, but in fact, as a historian, I can tell you so much of these debates, they are actually precedented. And that matters not because it's going to be an exact repeat of the past, um, but because we can see some of the broader underlying patterns of, of what is going on. And that helps us to at least play out one possible example. So the history of IP rights and news is a fantastic example of that, where there is a century and a half of history of this happening. We can see why it didn't work out in the late 20s, early 30s, see why it didn't work out five, six years ago in Germany. And these examples matter to help us understand what's happening in France and Australia today. Yeah, I, know. I think that's great. You know, I've, I've had a chance as part of this podcast to talk to Jeff Elgie, who runs Village Media, who expressed concern as an independent media organization about some of these proposals, as well as Yulia uh, Rita, who spoke specifically about the 
the German example as, as she was opposed to some of the so-called link tax type approaches that took place uh, within within at, when she was a member of the European Parliament. Uh, layering in that additional historical dimension, I think, is, is really valuable. Now, now, lastly, I'd be remiss if I if I, I didn't also touch on yet another area that you've been uh, active on, and that has to do with Canada's COVID communications and how our pandemic messaging hasn't been good enough. And I suspect many listening would undoubtedly agree. What do you think governments are doing poorly and, and what should they be doing? The first and most sort of basic point here is that, that I wrote a report with a, a team of fantastic researchers where we looked at nine countries on, on five continents to distill principles of effective communications around COVID. And we based that on original language research um, and the six, first six months of the pandemic, releasing it in September with the idea, okay, now it's time uh, for governments to really get on top of this before the fall. And I think that what we have seen is insufficient learning from other places that have done a really effective job and the humility to do so. And this is not just a Canadian problem. I think this has been a, a broader problem within uh, Europe and the Americas. So I think that's, you know, number one is we actually have a lot of evidence now around what effective communication in COVID looks like. Let's let's implement that. <laughs> and so there's, there's everything, I think, from the basics. Um, some provinces are doing better than others, which includes having one clear communicator, as BC does, um, who tries to build rapport with the population, who avoids blame games, uh, which is very important, and uh, provides people with a sense that there's one person that they listen to and this is what they should be doing. So a place like Ontario, I think, could, could learn a lot there. Um, some other things I would love to see more of um, pretty much everywhere doing a better job of, of what I'm going to call on a basic level, just meeting people where they're at, um, which includes all of the many social media channels that exist, putting things into graphics, making short videos, et cetera, et cetera. There needs to be more of that, less reliance on the TV ad and more of the realization that many people don't even have a TV, <laughs> including me. So if you want to meet people where they're at, you're going to have to repackage this in multiple different ways. Um, the other aspect of meeting people where they're at is recognizing how diverse Canada is and how many different languages people speak. In uh, British Columbia, for example, more than a million of the five million people who live here um, do not have English or French as their um, native language. So many of them may understand English, but producing things in other languages ranging from Cantonese, Mandarin, uh, Punjabi, etc., could have um, a really important effect. And I'd love to see that that more broadly. Um, we've seen that in most cases being filled by incredible civil society initiatives, but those are often um, done solely on people's time and having more um, of those kinds of things coming out of government with clear messaging in multiple languages would be Excellent. Um, and then a couple of others. So you can see I've got a long laundry list here. <laughs> um, a couple of others are maybe just more broad strategy things. Uh, one is that places that were really successful did a great job of pulling in civil society. Places like Senegal, where religious leaders are crucial from the beginning, imams and uh, Christian priests were at the forefront of doing the hand washing, cancelling services, and so on and so forth, working really hand in glove uh, with government. So pulling in civil society and figuring out who those people are is really crucial. And the final aspect that I'd say is that what we found was that rapidity is really key. It's why when we talked about principles in the, the report that I wrote and have been talking about, um, we call them the rapid principles, because the faster the governments came out with clear guidelines and that told people what they did know, what they didn't know, and when they were going to find out more, um, the less you found people uh, searching for quack cures, et cetera, et cetera. So I'd love to see that kind of proactive world uh, happening moving forward with uh, vaccines. So there's a whole host of things that, that I think governments can do better. 
some today, um, some are, are longer term, um, but it really is time we learn from this evidence now. Yeah, no, there's, uh, I think many of those lessons apply more broadly on, on communications of, of policy and, and other public issues, but particularly at this point in time as we hopefully move into rapid distribution of the vaccines. It's a bit of frustrating so far in Canada, but hopefully things will pick up, uh, ensuring that you've got an educated public and an aware public and, and meeting them, as you say, where they are becomes so essential. Heidi, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Mm-hmm.